Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm gonna show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Premed Year, session number 197. Hello and welcome to the two-time Academy Award-nominated podcast, The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Now, this week, I have a very special in-studio guest and it's not Allison this time. If this is your first time listening to us here at the Pre-Med Years, Allison is my wife and usual co-host who will jump in on the podcast and talk about medicine and other things in life. But this week, I have a lawyer who happens to be an uncle. <laughs> I think everybody has a, a lawyer who's an uncle or an uncle who's a lawyer. But we have Larry, who is a lawyer, and he's going to talk about how to stay out of trouble when answering questions for your applications and later on for uh, residency applications for your uh, board certifications and licensing and all of those fun things that you are applying for in the future as a physician and now as a pre-med student as you're applying to medical school when you are asked a question about any sort of criminal background or uh, any arrests, anything that's been expunged, we're going to dive into that. And it all started with working with one of my students, and we, we dig into that a little bit. And, and one of my students that I'm working with who has had some criminal background history and, and several of the secondary applications that she's working on have asked about that. So... Let's go ahead and dig into that, and we'll find out what Larry has to say about all of this fun stuff. Larry, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for inviting me. You are our first in-studio guest, and you're also our first lawyer on the show. Wow. Well, it's always nice to be the first. Now, doctors and lawyers usually don't get together and, and uh, mix well, right? They mix very badly. <laughs> but you have a an interesting track record of helping doctors. Right. Uh, about 25% of my practice over the last 10 years has been working with 
healthcare providers and professionals generally, uh, both in terms of trying to get themselves licensed, and then once they are licensed, dealing with complaints and then dealing with practice issues. So expand on that a little bit more, trying to get them licensed. Typically, getting a license is relatively straightforward. Are you dealing with a subset of physicians who have problems getting licenses? Well, the issues that I deal with have to do, number one, with the adequacy of education and meeting basic requirements for having had an appropriate academic record or having an academic experience, having internship experience, things along those lines. But another issue that often comes up is that in the application, there'll be questions of the person seeking admission where the answer will be problematic, either problematic substantively or problematic in terms of the appropriateness of the answer relative to the question asked, such as, I think one of the things that brings us here to talk today is people claiming that they did not have a prior arrest or a prior conviction relying on the fact that records were expunged and the answer being given uh, raising an issue with the board, which subsequently discovers that they did in fact have some prior event that should have been disclosed. So licensing typically involves those kinds of concerns. And then once people are licensed, just the whole array of issues that come up with complaints. Sometimes I do risk management with people to identify ways to avoid having to be confronted by the board. And then finally, more fundamental issues in practice, for example, with healthcare providers uh, responding to subpoenas, responding to requests for information, privacy issues under HIPAA or state privacy laws, things along those lines. So the work I've done has really been from the earliest stages of interacting with the boards all the way through experienced practitioners having to deal with issues with the boards and with, uh, frankly, with lawyers. Lawyers usually are their biggest problem. <laughs> Interesting. So yeah, I, I had reached out to you last week because a student that I'm working with has a prior arrest in her past. And as she's applying to medical schools now, they are the, the applications are asking very specific questions. One of them is, it says, uh, have you ever been arrested? One of them specifically mentions anything that has been expunged, you must include as well. Can you explain some of those things? So if I'm applying to medical school, I was arrested when I was 16 or 17 because all teenagers do stupid things. Just some of us are lucky enough never to be caught. And so I'm arrested and I was given a, a lenient, lenient, is that a word? Lenient sentence? And, and just given some community service and had my conviction withheld or, or whatever your lawyer terms are for that. And I never think about it again until now I'm applying to medical school and it's asking me, have I ever been arrested? And I go, well, no, I, I was never convicted of anything. I have no problems. What, how is a student supposed to go about those? Well, if I, if I could just sort of take your question and, and spend a few minutes put a, laying a foundation for it, it actually gets to be a very complicated problem for people applying for professional licenses. For one thing, for example, in the juvenile system, the records are always kept confidential or in most states are kept confidential. And so some people I've worked with have relied on the fact that the records are confidential to leave them feel a sense of security and denying that anything went on because the records are not accessible. In other situations, the individual will be told that the record will be expunged or the matter will be dropped or dismissed or will be removed from the record or anything along those lines. So some people will rely upon that to assume that uh, it's no longer something they have to deal with going forward. So it comes up in a variety of different contexts. Different states have different laws about when and under what circumstances information is subject to being reported. 
individual will believe that because they don't have to report it in the context of some state rules, policies, regulations, then now they don't have to report it to anybody. So it's a very confusing field, and it is, and it really is a tremendous landmine for all kinds of professionals, be it applicants for, for schools, medical schools, or people seeking licenses, because the system sends one message, but then the inquiry that comes from the person to whom the application is being made is making inquiries which seem inconsistent with that. So it is a very confusing area. My first reaction when she was asking me these questions and, and showing me exactly what the school is asking, and the school's like, even if it's been expunged, I'm like, well, isn't that the whole point of a record being expunged is so you don't have to answer this? Like, are they allowed to do that? I think that was my first reaction. It's important to try to understand what's going on from the side of the person asking or the entity asking the question. If you think about and can make sense of what they're doing and why, it kind of gives you a, a feel for how to deal with the process. So invariably at the licensing level, the issue for the entity granting the license, like a, a, a medical board or a psychology board or whatever, is that they want to know if there's something about your personality or character which is going to put the public at risk. It's always the issue at that level of the public at risk. For institutions who are providing an educational certification or of some sort, the issue for them is not dissimilar. They want to know if they're going to be graduating people who are going to qualify within the field. And so it's not that they're looking for something that they shouldn't be asking about. They're looking to acquire information which puts them in a position to say, is this someone who should be allowed to go forward at whatever level it happens to be. So when they ask about expungement and you say, well, you know, if it's expunged, why do I have to talk about it? The answer is that it's not the legal aspect of this that they're concerned with. They're interested in you as an individual and what your prior conduct says about whether they should be concerned about it. It's always a screening issue. And that's important to appreciate. It's always a screening question in the sense that they're looking to see whether they should be a red flag and if there is, then they want to explore it further to see if it's something that needs to be dealt with. And most of the time, in my experience, it can be dealt with. There are some things which candidly can't be dealt with. So if I could give you an example, you know, most of the time people who commit in their youth or early adulthood some type of activity which would be criminalized either by as a, as a violation or a misdemeanor or a felony, the individual will be given an opportunity to explain A, how it happened, B, what consequence there was, and see what they've done in their life to move past that point. And the agency asking the information, whether it's a school or a medical or a licensing board or whatever, when they see that, they're now in a position to say, okay, we can move on from here. And my experience, quite frankly, has been that the the person asking for information, the the educational institution, the credentialing agency, the licensing agency, are very reasonable in the way they approach those things. The the applicant is far more worried about it than the agency typically is. They just want to know what's there, and they want to know whether or not it's a continuing problem. That's true most of the time. But I have to say there are occasionally cases where someone has done something which is not going to be a solvable problem, and it may just mean that person needs to understand that they may not be able to do what they want to do. The most notorious example that I'm aware of, and I think it's it comes from the field of law where I come from, is a student who in young adulthood committed murder and admitted to the fact that, that he had committed murder. He was sentenced to prison. He served out the prison term and was released. There was no question about whether he fulfilled his obligation, did it appropriately. I mean, he was a model person in, in those regards. He then applied to a law school, and the law school took the view that you know he had done something horrible, but he had, ser- you know, he had 
accepted the consequences. He had paid the price and they were willing to accept him into the law school. So he applied, he got into the law school and was actually a very, very good student. Came out of the law school, has applied for admission to practice and has been denied multiple times the right to practice law. And undoubtedly, you know, will never be allowed to practice law within the, the jurisdiction where he applied. Because the view is that uh, within the profession of law, this is not the kind of person that we want to trust clients with. And so the bottom line here, I guess a summary point would be that most of the time, these are, f- are things that are not going to be a, an impediment to moving forward. Sometimes they will, but most of the time they won't. And the person who's being confronted with these questions should understand that these are screening issues to explore further characterological or personality issues. They're typically not up or down decision makers in their own right. Doesn't mean they can't be. Some schools may approach it that way. But in my experience, most of the time, they're looking for an explanation that will rule out the characterological or personality problem that's of concern. I think the scariest thing from from the pre-med side applying to school is that schools have thousands of applicants. And if you're marking yes to having a criminal background, it's just an easy way for them to weed you out because... Why Why even look at that when they have many other applications that deserve a spot that don't have that? So I, I think that's the scary part. And, and, and it's an absolutely appropriate and reasonable, <laughs> scary situation to be in. I guess, I guess what I would say is that the failure to respond in an accurate and honest way, in my experience, is always much worse and sometimes career-ending in and of itself. In other words, you're right that it may... Answering that question may undermine an individual's ability to get into that institution or any of a series of institutions. A persistent individual may yet be able to find an institution for which that will not be an issue. But in my experience, an individual who falsifies the information and doesn't answer the question accurately, when that is found out, you know, as a lawyer, you never say 100% to anything. But the overwhelming majority of times that I've seen, the person survives the underlying problem and then is destroyed by the fact of the dishonesty. And the, and the underlying problem goes away as an issue in that person's life, but the, un, but the dishonesty never does. Follows a person everywhere and is always an impediment. And now they have two or $300,000 of medical school debt and can't work as a physician because they were caught in a lie. Right. The problem is if you look at the forms carefully, and I don't have one in front of me, but if you look at the forms carefully, at the end they always say, uh, ask you whether if, you, if you're aware that you're answering these questions, that you're answering them under truthfully, they may say that you're answering them under penalty of perjury. Perjury is a crime, a felony in most states. And so when you sign them, you're now signing something which you say is true. And the, there's no time limit for going back and seeing if, in fact, there was a false statement made. And, you know, if you, if you follow the newspapers, you can find stories at least once a month, if not more frequently, of people who are discovered somewhere down the road to have made a false statement. And that's typically the end for them. I mean, people do survive and they go on with their lives in other ways. But for, for that area of interest, it, 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 it brings it to an end. So the point that I guess I'm making, and we'll talk about the questions in a minute, but the point I'm making is that avoiding dealing with the reality of what occurred by giving a dishonest answer is a road to a disaster which is simply waiting to occur as opposed to a solution that's not going to be a problem later. Okay. Interesting. All right. So 
What the the questions that that you want to answer? What what do you think are common questions that get people in in trouble? Well, l- let me make first, you know, the, the the comment if I could about what to do as sort of a general sort of guideline, which is to look at the question very specifically. What is, what exactly is being asked, and to answer that question. Many people get themselves into challenging situations by taking a question and then giving more information than really is being called for. So the question might be, have you ever been convicted of a crime? And the answer to that would be no. But the person says, well, I was never convicted, but I was arrested. Well, now you've led your, led this thing into a new area, whereas an answer, a simple answer, no, would apply. What lawyers teach other lawyers to do and by way of working with clients and by guiding clients is to follow this advice. Answer the question honestly, accurately, and completely without volunteering anything. And if you can do that when you're working with these kind of questions, you will always come out better. People get themselves into trouble by reading more into the question and offering more as opposed to reading it literally. Turning that are the kinds of questions that get people into trouble. Questions like, were you arrested? You ever interacted with law enforcement? Have you ever been convicted of a felony, convicted of a misdemeanor? convicted of a violation. Or this one, have you ever committed any criminal offense? Yeah, that's, that's a really broad question. <laughs> and, I, I, it, and, and many institutions are now working on going away from those kind of questions because they're so broad. You sort of are hinting at something by doing it, but if you, if you see a question like that and you really don't understand what it means, the prudent thing to do would be to try to find out what the institution is really asking. Have you ever committed an offense uh, does that mean that you engaged in activity which might have been criminal or a violation of some kind, as opposed to saying, have you ever committed something, meaning that you were ever actually interacted with the law enforcement system, and in that sense, were found to have committed something? So when, you, when you're confronted with a, with a question where the wording is simply not understandable, the best advice that I could give would be either to contact the institution and say, I don't understand this question, what are you asking? Or to consult with a lawyer who's familiar with this kind of practice in the jurisdiction that you're in or dealing with the school that you're in and get the answer that way. That's, that, that would be a question which, as a lawyer, would be very troubling to me. Uh, we, we, we commit, I, I commit a crime almost every day by speeding, right? Yeah. But I'm, I'm never arrested for it. So, so there's, there's a good example of, of just how challenging this can be. When you speed, you actually don't commit a crime. You commit a violation of, <laughs> of uh, the speeding regulations. If you were to drive at a speed above a certain level, uh, you might, in fact, be committing a crime. Criminal, uh, right. uh, reckless so, driving. Right. So there are some violations, traffic violations, that are just violations. There's some rise to the level of misdemeanors, and there's some that rise to the level of felonies. So if the question is, have you ever been convicted of a traffic violation, that would give one answer. If you've ever been convicted of a traffic crime would be another kind of answer. So if, if you're in a situation where, you, where you're dealing with these kinds of issues, uh, you really are better off spending a little bit of money and having someone give you some guidance than to simply jump in and answer it, hoping that you've guessed right about the way to proceed. Let's see if we can get a specific example of somebody maybe that you've worked with that did the wrong thing and was caught later. Sure. So, so this is this is public record, but I'm going to change the facts a little bit just to protect the client anyway. Uh, I had a client who was practicing within one of the health fields, and he had been practicing for a number of years. When he went to renew his license, he was asked a question 
along that I believe was, have you ever been convicted of a crime? And he had confronted that question previously in the applications and given a certain answer. And this time he gave a different answer, a slight variation on the answer. That was a red flag to the agency to go looking for something. And what they discovered was this person who had always said, no, I hadn't, in fact, had been arrested and tried for rape, convicted, and had served uh, multiple years in a medical institution. He came out of the institution and had his, he thought, well, he had records expunged. He had the conviction set aside, and he had the records expunged. But the records that he had expunged were the court records. He did not have the police records expunged. Or it may have been the other way around. He had one but not the other. And what happened is when, when this red flag got lit up by inconsistent answers, they researched it. They found all of this that had gone on and uh, were now in a position where they wanted to take away his license, not so much for the underlying act, but for the persistent fraudulent statements that had gone over an extended period of time. And uh, we had a, a good outcome in that case, and, but he was at risk of having his uh, ability to practice revoked for the uh, false statement. And his defense was that, you know, he had gotten the thing dismissed. He had gotten the records expunged. He thought it was gone forever and therefore believed that he could answer it no. When in fact, the question called for a yes answer and he simply didn't give it. What does expunged really mean? Expunged means that the the, the content of the record is, remo- is removed from identification by any common search. And so it's the, typically the records are not really themselves removed simply, but rather the ability to find it through an indexing system is removed. And so the records are there if someone knows to, you know, how to go looking for it, but a typical question, a typical inquiry, and typical search isn't going to find it. Now, some, in some places, the records are actually destroyed. So, for example, deal with the Bar Association, and an individual might get a letter from the Bar Association of Concern telling them that they are concerned about behavior in which they've engaged. And after three years, the bar will write the lawyer a letter and say, we're going to be destroying these records, meaning remove it from the file. So in that situation, there's an actual removal. But very often in the public sector, when there's discussion about expungement, what they're really talking about doing is is removing the ability to find the record so that it can be identified in a in various kinds of searches. Interesting. So at the end of the day, really, if you have any sort of criminal past, you need to be open and honest about it. You need to be open and honest about it to the extent of the question being asked of you. I, I mean, it, it may sound like, you know, a, uh, some type of deviousness, but it's really not. The institution has chosen to ask the question in a particular way, and you want to answer that question and not go beyond it but also not fail to respond to it. And that's why I say an honest, accurate, and complete answer to the question without volunteering anything is really the appropriate way to proceed in these applications. Is there anything else that you want to add to that discussion? Again, you know, to, to, you know, appreciating what the purpose is will lead you to understand better what the question is and to, you know, provide a response. I, I can't help but be very sensitive to what you're, you said before about you know the fact that you are standing out in some way from other individuals by having this on your record as opposed to something else. Uh, what I do with clients who have those kinds of issues, 
when there's something actually be said is I encourage them, number one, to provide a written explanation along with it. So even if it's not called for, so that the institution has an explanation of what's going on, number one, and number two, to seek out the ability to communicate with someone directly, either face-to-face or by telephone, to talk about the issue that's presented. Because in that way, you can remove some of the stigma that you're that you the applicant are assuming is going to be there so that's what i routinely recommend to my clients when they're making applications and have these issues yeah and i talk about that all the time on this podcast is is you have to advocate for yourself sometimes and this is a situation where you'd have to do that absolutely yeah okay well i asked in the hangouts the the facebook group i i said i have a lawyer coming on what kind of questions do you have and so the first question that came up was about malpractice. And Sylvia asks, when a doctor gets sued and the doctor works for a healthcare, a healthcare system, so a hospital, how does that work? Does it affect the doctor's malpractice insurance or the hospital's malpractice insurance? Who, uh, who, who gets dinged in that situation? Well, from, from an insurance standpoint, uh, it, it typically will depend upon which insuring agency is forced to respond, meaning to pay something. And by paying something, there are two parts to that. One part is providing a defense if there's a lawsuit provided, and the other part is making a payment, whether it's by virtue of an agreement, which is called a settlement, or by virtue of a, a, deter- a formal determination, be it through an arbitration or through a judgment. That's one way in which a person's insurance rating may be affected. The other way would be if and when there's a report made to the national database. And the reason the national database exists is just for this. So there's a sharing of information among all interested parties about what's happened to an individual so that they can then go look at the database and see if there's something in there which should have some impact on, among other things, premiums. As an aside, and you didn't ask this, but as an aside, it's important for everyone to understand that if you're reported to the national database, you do have the right to file a response and the response will be present. So that if someone then goes to the national database, being an insurance company, a credentialing agency, a lot, a school, anybody who goes to the website will or to the national database will see both the complaint and your response as well. And that can be very powerful in terms of being able to answer for that. So that's something that you should be aware of and certainly should do. So that's the first part of the answer to your question. The second part is, is, uh, you know, which is a premium. You know, how is that going to affect my premiums? The second part is to understand why these play out the way that they do. And it, and it turns out in many cases to be idiosyncratic to the lawyer involved. When a lawyer files a malpractice lawsuit, the lawyer is looking to find a fund of resources from which that lawyer can uh, get compensation for his or her client. Now, most health insurance, professional liability insurance policies, particularly in the medical area, have what are called consent clauses, meaning that the case cannot be resolved without the consent of the healthcare provider. And the individual provider, like doctors, tend to be much more unwilling to give consent than the institutions do. So very often a lawyer who sues someone will sue the doctor who's involved and will sue the institution to have two different ways of trying to collect funds. Uh, Now, sometimes you have to sue both Uh, For example, in a situation where a doctor is working for, let's say, a hospital, uh, there's an allegation of misconduct. If the misconduct is within what's called the course and scope of the doctor's employment, 
then the institution is going to be responsible for that. And in that situation, you may sue the doctor to get access to his or her malpractice insurance, and you would sue the institution to get access to theirs. Typically, the institution will have more funds available and policy limits and things like that. But typically, the lawyers will sue both. But let's suppose the doctor does something which the hospital says is not permitted. So let's suppose, for example, the doctor has been told previously by the institution uh, that when you perform that, a sur- you're not allowed to perform certain kinds of surgeries, or you're not allowed to use certain techniques when performing surgeries. The doctor, in violation of that direction, then engages in the surgery and uses that technique. The institution would then say that the doctor has operated outside the course and scope of employment and would deny any obligation the, the institution's insurance policy would also uh, refuse to both either defend or pay. And now all you have left is the healthcare provider himself or herself to go after. So the reason that the lawsuits are filed naming both is to make sure, because you don't know in advance, make sure as a lawyer that you're going to be able to go after somebody uh, for what you're complaining about. And if you double up in our, in our getting uh, two sources of funding, you can only collect, you know, one judgment or one settlement, but you at least have the potential to go after both. I don't know if that went way beyond what you're asking me, but. I I think at the end of the day, if you're named in a lawsuit in some sort of malpractice suit, whether you're a hospital employee, whether you're working in private practice, whether wherever you are, if you're named when you apply for your state licenses and and other things, that's a common question is, have you ever been part of a malpractice suit? Yeah, and if you're named, the answer is yes. Yeah. The answer is yes, I I have been named, and it's it such a common occurrence, and there are so many cases that get dismissed, and so many healthcare providers who either prevail or the case is dropped or whatever. It's not the, the badge of dishonor that many people think it is. It's simply something, again, that needs to be explained, and if acknowledged and explained will re- resolve, life will move on. If denied and lied upon, then it's going to live with you forever. Yeah. Yeah, it's another one of those where be honest up front and right. you'll be good. So another question here is an interesting one, and I won't name the name just because of the type of question, but it's a prescription for cannabis oil, or I guess nowadays prescription for medical marijuana. How does that affect medical licensing and, and maybe even admin, admittance to medical school? Well, 25 states, I think the number is 25, 25 states now allow for the use of marijuana in medical circumstances, and I think there are four states, maybe five, that allow the use of marijuana in for recreational uses, including, for example, the state of Colorado. And so that looks to be very, very promising and appealing. The problem is that the federal government has never changed its laws. So it's now, you know, in the, in the challenging situation whereby a person who purchases medical marijuana and uses it may well be violating or sell, sells it, may well be violating federal law, but complying with state law. And how this will all play out over time is not entirely clear. The advocates say it's nothing to worry about. The federal government ultimately will come around, but it is something that that people can be concerned about. So technically speaking, when you sell medical marijuana, when you possess it uh, for use in a a medical situation, you are technically violating the law. You're violating the the federal law that that criminalizes it, but you may well be complying with the state law. So that's another one of those situations, and I'm sorry to keep coming back to this, but another one of those situations where you really need to look at the question that's being asked and answer the question that's being asked before you because it's a, it's, it is at this stage a confusing area at, a, at many, many different levels. Usually what I've seen is when I've filled out privileging paperwork, credential paperwork, 
they they have you fill out your prescriptions that you're on, medical prescriptions. And usually the cannabis stuff, they, they aren't official prescriptions. I don't know if I'd put those on there. Those are usually labeled recommendations from physicians. So it, it's an interesting, again, just the, the verbiage that you use of, of what to do. Yeah, if it's not really a prescription and you're asked what the prescriptions are, yep. then it's not something that was prescribed to you. And you, uh, if, on the other hand, the question is, have you used medical marijuana, then now you're confronted directly with the issue. Yeah. One more question that, that came in was, and this is a common question now for, for students who have some sort of training as a paramedic or an EMS or even one student that I know who was a former physician's assistant, so they have their medical training, and are now in medical school, but they still wanna work as a paramedic or an EMS person or even a, a PA. Do, do you have any experience with that? So it's almost a scope of practice question. Boy, I sure do. Um, in <laughs> fact, I'm, I'm aware of a, of a case right now going on where uh, someone was a paramedic and applied to nursing school and was accepted in a nursing school program, was then assigned out to do clinicals or practicals and was engaging in activity that was outside the scope of the uh, authorized practice for, a, life, for a, a nurse student, but within the scope of practice for a paramedic. And the person got into multiple situations of difficulty and I think was ultimately removed from the program. So the point here is to operate within the license for the activity in which you're engaging. So if you're engaging in activity that is within the scope of a, of a school's student license and don't apply the extra authority you might have by virtue of being a paramedic without being very clear that that's what you're doing, this person got himself or herself, I can't remember which it was, removed from a program for, for basically intermixing the two. Yeah, that can get confusing. It's just like, oh, did I did I learn the skill in school three weeks ago, or was that something I learned <laughs> in paramedic school? You know, and, and the best solution for that is to go to whoever is conducting the program or supervising it, and saying, "Look, I've been asked to do this. Here's what I'm. Here's what I've learned in nursing school or medical school that I'm doing. Here's what I have from a prior experience." tell me what I should or should not be doing. The best thing to do is to get direction, not simply to proceed. Uh, and then if you do proceed and you get uh, redirected, let's say, in your behavior to follow the redirection and not to assume that simply because you are have such and such experience or such and such other credential that you can apply it in this situation. Yeah. I think that's a, a ton of great information, Larry. I appreciate your time. Is there anything... Any any last words of wisdom to leave leave the listener with to to encourage them if they've had some sort of missteps along the way or or how to avoid any missteps uh, in the future? Yeah, you know it it's going to sound like you know full employment for lawyers, uh, but what I would say is that the consequences for all of these circumstances applying to medical school, applying for a license, applying for fellowships, and uh, placements, internships, whatever it may be, are so great that when in doubt, you're better off spending the nominal amount of money that's going to be involved relative to the rest of your life to go and get advice from someone. So if you're not certain about what to do, don't simply do it. Go and get some direction and make sure that you're, you're operating in the way that you need to, whether it's from the entity that you're applying to 
or go find a lawyer. Now, one a caveat there, not every lawyer is experienced in doing these things. So you want to seek out lawyers who are experienced in dealing with credentialing, who deal with the, uh, this area of administrative law involving licensing and get direction. But you're far better off spending a few dollars and getting clarification and direction than you are simply to plug ahead, stick your head in the ground and hope for the very best. Now I'll edit this out if you don't <laughs> want it in there, but I was going to ask you if you're open to people contacting you, if, you, sure. if you're for hire. I'm, I'm open to people contacting me. My practice has always been that if someone calls me, I give them the first hour of time free. And I've been doing that with healthcare providers for 15 years. You're welcome to contact me. And so my contact information, if you would like to speak with me, is ljc at cohenscounsel, C-O-H-E-N-S-C-O-U-N-S-E-L dot com. Uh, or my phone number is area code 602-405-4022, where you can also reach me at 602-266-3080. Again, I'm more than happy to try to hint, answer questions, and if I can't answer them, to redirect you elsewhere. Awesome. And we'll have those phone numbers and email addresses and everything in the show notes. Awesome. Larry, thanks for joining me. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Well, there you have it. I think obviously the easy answer to all of this is don't get in trouble. But the realistic answer for those of you who have been in trouble or come close to being in trouble with the legal system is just be honest and open and always ask for clarification if you need it. And always, 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 if you need it, or even if you don't think you need it, go seek expert advice from a lawyer, typically, who's going to to have that expertise that you don't have. Now, I know lawyers and doctors shouldn't get along, and I shouldn't be recommending you to go talk to a lawyer, but I think this is one of those cases where they will come in handy and Larry gave all of his information. If you need that information again, go to medicalschoolhq.net slash 197 and all of his information will be there. I want to thank this week's podcast sponsor, Elite Medical Scribes. If you are on the pre-med journey and you are struggling to find clinical experience to help support and strengthen your application, look no further than Becoming a Scribe with Elite Medical Scribes. You can check out all of their career openings at medicalschoolhq.net slash EMS. Elite Medical Scribes is going to train you how to be a scribe. They're going to get you in there working one-on-one with a physician to help you learn what it's like to be part of that healthcare team as a scribe. You are in there with the physician, with the patient, with the rest of the team, and in learning the interactions of the healthcare profession. It's amazing clinical experience. And several months ago, we had a former dean of admissions at UC Irvine talk about how being a scribe is amazing clinical experience. And usually, the number one thing that prevents students from getting into school, according to her, is lack of clinical experience. So being a scribe, amazing experience, not only for your applications, but in the future as a physician, you're starting to learn how the healthcare system works, how the interactions go while dealing with patients, and so much more. So check them out, medicalschoolhq.net slash EMS. Thank you, Elite Medical Scribes, for sponsoring the pre-med years. 
I also want to mention Audible. Now, if you don't know what Audible is, then you should, and most likely you do. So Audible, whenever I talk about reading books, I usually am referring to listening to them through Audible, whether I'm running on a treadmill at home, running around, training for a half marathon, as I am right now, I'm usually listening to podcasts or audiobooks, and I listen to audiobooks through Audible. You can sign up and and for free get one book through Audible. And even if you cancel before the free trial period, that book is yours to keep. You can always play it through your Audible app, even without an active account with them. I have a list of the 10 best books that I think you should read as a pre-med student, and I actually have an, an extra list too. But you can go to medicalschoolhq.net slash 10 books, and that will show you the books that I recommend you read on your pre-med journey. Yes, one of them happens to be, I, th- I think it's an extra one that I added on there. One of them happens to be my new interview book that I released, the pre-med playbook guide to the medical school interview. But there are several books from Atul Gawande, who is an amazing physician and maybe even a better writer. And his newest book, Being Mortal, is on Audible. You can read it, air quotes, read it for free and keep it even after the trial ends. You can go to audibletrial.com MSHQ to download your free audiobook today. I want to thank a couple people who have left us ratings and reviews in iTunes. We have one here from Katie May 541 that says, Pre-Med Student Lifeline. I don't remember how I came to find this podcast, but it has been a huge source of info for me. This podcast will call you on what you need to do and also is encouraging for the things you are accomplishing as a pre-med student. Thank you for the weekly podcast. I look forward to listening every week and writing about what else I need to do as a pre-med. All right, thank you for that, Katie May 541 We have another one here from Burhan22, who says, oh, we got three thumbs up. That's pretty cool. You did emojis as the title. <laughs> it's awesome. It says, first of all, I really appreciate the hard work that Dr. Ryan Gray and his fellow partners have put on this podcast. I started listening to this podcast about two months ago, and it really helped me out a lot, not only about the MCAT, but also what to really expect in med school and et cetera. I really recommend this podcast to anyone who wants to be a physician, even if they are still in high school. This podcast has some good quality information. Burhan22, thank you for that. If you would like to leave us a rating and review in iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it. You can do that at medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes. Well, I hope you got a lot of interesting information out of the podcast today to help you navigate your journey to medical school and to licensing if you've ever been arrested or convicted of a crime and and you're wondering what you need to do along the way. So make sure to check us out next week as we talk to a student who navigated her way through the post world after not doing so well in her undergrad, initial undergrad experiences, and she found a linkage program through a master's program. So Again, that's next week here at the Pre-Med Years.
Don't forget to check out all of our other podcasts at mededmedia.com.